You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. I'm your host, Brandon, and this is episode 86. This week, I have special guest Katrina Blair. She's the author of The Wild Wisdom of Weeds, 13 Essential Plants for Human Survival. And before you assume that this episode will have nothing to do with fermentation, you just wait and listen because even weeds can be fermented. Katrina, thanks for joining me today and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Getting into the subtitle of, of your book, 13 Essential Plants for Human Survival, what is it about these 13 plants that make them so special? I mean, we're talking about weeds here, so things that are generally considered a nuisance or invasive. What is it that should make anyone care to incorporate these into their life? So the 13 plants that I focus on in my book are found growing all across the entire world next to human civilization. So really every city, town, where humans live permanently, these weeds will be growing alongside our disturbances. And what makes them so unique is that they really do grow in the niche that the, of the human disturbance. And we are some of the best disturbers of Earth on planet Earth. <laughs> and so it's these weeds that are the, the plants that offer themselves as food and medicine for us, no matter where we live. Kind of makes me think of, and you you highlight this in, in your book as well about uh, the concept of or the flawed concept of invasive plants. I mean, when you talk about us humans are great disturbers, um, we kind of, in some ways, are very much so like these so-called invasive plants. We're almost the most invasive of all. Um, could you kind of share more about this uh, this flawed concept of invasive plants that you write about? Yes, great. Yeah, what what I started noticing when I was traveling, just I've always been a in lover of all plants and wild edibles and wild edible medicinal plants. But when I was traveling, I noticed these wild weeds were following me everywhere I went in every country. And so as I started to do more research, I realized that, oh, these plants are actually home on planet Earth everywhere. There's no place that they can't call their home. So they're actually the opposite of invasive. In a way, they, they're home everywhere. And not only that, but they're doing such a service to the earth because they're actually regenerating topsoil and removing compaction because they have deep tap roots and that breaks up any of the compacted soil and makes aeration for earthworms and all the microorganisms to come in and start doing their great work. And then at every, every fall, winter, they drop their leaves and rebuild the topsoil. So in addition to being incredible food for humans, they actually are regenerating the earth. So they are such a service. So then why is it that everyone's trying to get rid of their dandelions in their, in their lawn? Is it just a complete misunderstanding? It's a complete misunderstanding. <laughs> yes. I mean, and it seems like in your your book, you're trying to kind of change this uh, this this mindset or inspire this this change. Do you find that that people are are resistant to hearing this about these uh, these so called invasive plants? I mean, do people still, or I guess regulatory agencies? I mean, sometimes uh, wanting to um, say that some of these invasive plants must be destroyed. Do you find resistance, or are people do they does it click once they understand the concept? Yeah, so I definitely experienced both. I mean, the motivation for writing this book is really to help shift the pattern of being um, using herbicides in particular of eradicating these plants. And of course, the harm that goes into those practices of trying to get rid of the weeds 
uh, affects our water sources. It, it hugely affects the immune system of the pollinating insects, especially the bees. So when we, and of course, they're harming my food source <laughs> on a personal level. And I do live in a county in Colorado where it is mandatory that these weeds um, be eradicated. And in fact, there's still a law out there that if I have them growing on my property, they can come in and spray and then give me the bill. So yeah, I absolutely would love to change those regulations. And in, in those circles, it's a little slow to change because there's a lot of fear that they're taking over and some of these, these concepts. But then when I share this information about how valuable they are as food and medicine and how many amazing things you can do with these wild plants that are so common, people generally get very lit up because 13 isn't too many to learn. And because they're so common, they're easy to find and easy to identify. So it really can empower people to realize how much resource is right outside their door. Yeah, and that makes me think of uh, the the foreword of your book done by Sander Katz, which most people listening to the show uh, would know who he is. And I, I really love how he put that um, most people in today's society can uh, can name more or, or recognize more corporate brands than they can plants. And I would argue that, yeah, most people aren't even able to recognize 13, but like you're saying, it's not that many. And and is it is it easy? I mean, are these plants that are something that someone could easily confuse with a, a poisonous plant. I mean, I think that's something that people are concerned of if they're going out. Are they going to, uh, are they going to die from a poisonous plant? Yeah, these 13 plants in general are pretty easy to identify and in general are not in close resemblance to a poisonous plant. Um, of course, you know, we all have a different perspective on our comfort level of what we can identify. And so it's, it's great to go out um, with someone else who knows these plants first. And a lot of them, people will already know. They're the automatic, of course I know that plant. And if not, somebody else nearby will because they are so common. Thinking thinking of, of this and thinking of your, your 13 weeds, it makes me think of other books that I've, I've looked at that, um, uh, and learned from about edible foraged foods. I mean, why? what is it? Do you think that there's any kind of differentiation between, say, these wild weeds that you cover and other welcomed edible foraged foods, as in things like uh, mushrooms or even to a certain extent uh, ramps? I mean, things that people uh, know are coming from uh, the wild, but they welcome them, whereas most of these weeds seem like something that it takes a little bit more work to to consider to be food. Is it because they're less delicious or is there no difference and it's just how we how we think about it? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think once we start to recognize them and taste them, we'll realize that, oh, actually, they're delicious. Like purslane is one of them, and it's a delicious succulent that's slightly lemony, or lamb's quarter, which is a wild spinach. And when it's in its prime, it's very delicious, and even more delicious than spinach. So I think, and, and even thistle, which is one of them, when the root is harvested and made into a delicious chai tea, you know, it becomes just a gold mine of, um, of value. So I think it's m- maybe that we've been conditioned to see these plants as the undesirables, and now it's time to see them as very desirable because they're the critical food and medicine that's around us all the time and 
in the biggest picture, the most sustainable way to eat. Well, and could you expand on that that idea of a, a gold mine? I mean, are we talking as in just just a food, a, a nourishment, or are is there more to these than than just um, just a food source? I mean, are there abundance of nutrients in these things, or is it just a little? There's an abundance, and that's what's exciting. Is that truly? Um, I, in my experience, both intuitively and also in the research that I've done. Even a dandelion growing in the middle of a crack of a sidewalk in San Francisco may have more nutrients available to it than much of what we would buy at the supermarket. And part of that is because the seeds of these wild plants are very resilient and very well at adapting and basically drawing the nutrients they need to thrive. And they have learned through evolution this this gift and the skill. And I find that when I eat them, of course, we are what we eat. So when we eat these very resilient plants, we become wise like those wild weeds. We become it on a cellular level because we, um, that, that intelligence goes right into us in our matrix on, on a very you know, intimate place. So not only the nutrient levels like proteins, calcium, vitamin A, vitamin K, you know, the B vitamins, they're off the scale in comparison to much of the food just grown in the grocery store that we can buy. Um, they're actually superfoods from that perspective. And am I understanding this correct that like just when I think about this, say a garden vegetable or any vegetables that come out of agricultural production, I mean, these vegetables have been chosen and selected by humans over time, but I'm assuming that most of them weren't selected for necessarily their their nutrient. They were selected for either their color or their size a lot of times. So did we somewhere along the line go for a larger size with fewer nutrients, whereas we could just continue to enjoy these these wild weeds, these wild vegetables and and receive just as much nutrients just in a smaller package? Yeah, that's a great question because you, you hit it on the nose because, like, for example, a wild amaranth seed, which some people call pigweed, and it's a tiny little black seed where I live. There's lots of varieties, but the one that grows all around my place is a tiny little black seed, and it's a complete protein, but it's absolutely packed with nutrients. And then if you compare that to a very hybridized grain, such as wheat, it's a huge seed, and yet contains very, very little nutrients when you compare the two. And even the wild grasses compared to the, the wheat grass, um, the wheat berry, which is also a grass, it's actually, you know, just radically different in nutrient level. And kind of a core integrity also, because the wild seeds have not been hybridized by human hands. They've evolved through nature and through, you know, cause and effect and really getting the upper edge to survive. And they've done a really great job out of any plants, you know, in this current day, they can handle the changing climate and the changing temperatures and, you know, high altitudes, dry, wet. They're really incredible on that level. And just to keep going, one more thought on that is that because they're so small, we don't have to eat as much of them. And so a little goes a long way. So it's very efficient. And and do you think that this is actually a, a realistic idea for, uh, say, uh, future population growth and 
some a food to actually be able to eat, even if uh, climate does change, as you're suggesting. Is if this, if things do change, is this a kind of food? That is in abundance. I mean, is it? I mean, I know that I see weeds all over the place, but is it realistic? Even in a nutrient densely packed little package, is it something that we could live off of more so without much supplementation from, uh, say, garden vegetables or otherwise? Yes, I really do see that this is a pathway to surviving when, um, let's say, some of our main systems break down. If that were to happen, these wild, these wild plants. Are, they actually regenerate better when we go and harvest them and scuff them up and, you know, because we're spreading the seeds and we're disturbing the soil and that actually is their niche. So it's amazing how it's a lot more difficult to over-harvest these wild weeds than it is probably most other plants. So that's a nice sustainable way that they're going to keep surviving. And then on a nutrient level, absolutely, we would have what we need. We have complete proteins and chlorophyll and carbohydrates. You know, we really do have, um, they provide what we would need to survive. And that sounds that sounds awesome. And it just totally blows my mind. And, and looking at your book, that's kind of what shifted some of my perspective, because it's generally, when I've even looked at some wild foraging books or otherwise, I haven't really had that sense of what you're describing of that. It is this little nutrient um, dense uh, gold mine. And otherwise it starts to seem like, well, that is quite a bit of work. You know, I put a lot of work into a garden, but weeds being such small little packages, it doesn't seem like my efforts would, would pay off, but that's, what's really changing with this, this mindset is that, wow, maybe I really could harvest far fewer things and actually eat less sometimes, at least, at least occasionally or do it, um, do it more often. And I, I really got excited to, um, look at your book and saw, okay, what do I have? That's possibly still growing. That's a weed now that it's fall and a thistle. I do still have some thistle and I tried your, the only thing I've been able to try from the book so far is uh, thistle chewing gum. So could you describe that? And also, where did this idea come from? Is this common practice in the past, or is this something that you kind of discovered? Yeah, the thistle chewing gum. I'm glad you got to try that. <laughs> That's great. Um, you know, the flower is the sweetest part. And of course, the bees know that, and the horses and goats know that. And so I think I just, um, I'm naturally a bit curious and experimenter type person. And so yeah, I just started eating the flowers and realized, wow, they're so sweet once you get past the fluff. And then the fluff turns into chewing gum and you've got this great garden chew while you're working outside. And yeah, and you're benefiting by eating this thistle flower and you've been getting some of those juices. You're actually getting nourished at the same time. So I'm glad you got to try that. <laughs> yeah, and I was actually surprised that it. I was expecting maybe something a little, little weird or off, but it I mean, consistency, consistency is a little different, but it pretty much is like chewing gum. And I haven't uh, chewed gum in, in years, but it was like, hey, this is so much better than sugary sweet or artificially sweetened uh, gums. Yeah. And it cleans your teeth in a real way, <laughs> yeah. which, which is awesome. So can we maybe switch gears a little bit and talk about fermentation? So in your book, you touch on this a little bit, um, and I'm hoping maybe we can uh, talk about it a little bit more here. How do you ferment many of your harvested weeds? I know you do other things like uh, drying and other forms of preservation, but do you incorporate fermentation very much? I do very much. I love fermentation. And um, one of my favorite things to do is 
to ferment the roots, to culture the roots. And so when I'm making like a sauerkraut or a kimchi, you know, I'll go and specifically add these wild weeds, roots into my into my ferments. And part of the reason, so for so, so example, dandelion root or dock root or even thistle root, um, but really any of these roots, lambscore to the amaranth, they're all edible roots. And so integrating these roots into my sauerkrauts and into my kimchi, I find that not only do I get this incredible grounding wisdom from these wild plants, but I can't always wash off every speck of dirt. And I realize that the dirt on these wild plants is a whole colony of microorganisms that's directly from the soil where I live. And I feel so benefited by culturing those wild organisms within my culture. (laughs) And it makes total sense thinking about roots. I mean, we put roots in our ferments anyway with kimchi, with daikon radish, or sometimes carrot or different things. I mean, we're already putting roots. So do these add a lot of flavor or do they kind of blend with whatever else is that you're fermenting them with? I find that they blend in. Even dandelion, which can at times be a little bitter, but it also can end up being quite sweet if you collect it at sort of more of the winter stages because the sugars actually go back down into the roots and concentrate. <clears throat> so the mallow root and the dandelion root, you know, if you gather those in the wintertime or in the early, early spring, they're delicious, even just eating them straight. But if you culture them, yeah, they fit right in with whatever it is you're, you're culturing, whether it's a little more spicy or, um, or just plain you're getting that sour deliciousness (laughs) mixed in with, and the roots do, they just blend in. And and you're also hitting on something else that I I don't think of that often. I mean, if, if people have tried say dandelion root before and it's been too bitter for them and they don't understand why anyone would want to enjoy that, it just seems more so that people have kind of lost the understanding of how these plants work. I mean, once you start to know a few things like dandelion becomes sweeter when the sugars go back into the roots, does that kind of go across the board? Can you start um, understanding more about plants in general, or are they all specific based on whatever kind of root or plant it is? Yeah, no, that's actually a pattern with all plants. So it's like the nutrient level and the actually the flavor, um, like our what we would find desirable, follows the plant stages of life oftentimes. So, you know, when before the plant has even shot out any of the green leaves, it's the root that's going to be the most delicious. And then the first green leaves that come out, that's going to be the most choice. And then as the plant moves up into the stem, that becomes the juiciest part. And so, like, I do give a recipe for fermenting thistle stems, and the best time to harvest them is before that thistle flowers because all the juice and all the energy is still in the stem. And then, of course, once it goes to flower, that's where the the delicious and the energy is. And then eventually it goes to seed. And then that's where it ultimately ends up being before it all drops back down into the root. So when you mentioned this thistle thing, though, so when I think thistles, and, and I generally let them grow if it's not an area that's going to poke me, I like to let a few things go kind of wild. And, uh, but that's the thing is they, they really are sharp. How are you dealing with this, especially if you're going to ferment the stem? What do you do to prepare it so that you're not uh, going to munch down on some really prickly thing? Yeah, good question. So with the thistle, uh, there's no spines on the very back 
ridge, like underneath the leaf. So if I'm very careful, I'll use my fingers and I'll just peel off the leaves. And that just depends on which thistle you're working with because there's a lot of different thistles. So sometimes if, if I don't want to just do it barehanded, I'll use a knife and I'll just peel off the, the leaves. Of course, I use the leaves to then make a green juice um, before I, you know, I don't just discard them. I use all the parts of the thistle. But, but to then the stem, once you get the leaves off, it's almost, I mean, sometimes I'll have to just peel it a little bit, but it's pretty easy to peel off all the, the spines. And then you just have this amazing celery-like stem that's very juicy, an amazing source of mineralized water is in the stem. And, yeah, and then you can ferment them like you would any kind of um, pickle or vegetable like that. That just seems crazy to me because it's it's the, the, the thistle is just something that seems so dangerous, and yet it's just hiding right underneath. Yeah, <laughs> it is so fun. And I guess, you know, it's, in some ways you said it might be more work, but really it's so much less work than growing a garden because you don't have to plant the seeds. You don't have to water them. All you have to do is harvest them. <laughs> well, and so many people, if they are raising a garden, I mean, they're going to be pulling out weeds anyway. So instead, instead of weeding, just harvesting the weeds when they're ready sounds so much easier. Exactly. And really, that's the best place to start. It's not to say, oh, absolutely um, only eat weeds. It's really, let's integrate these wild weeds into our diet now to get used to them and to benefit from them. And then they'll lead the way as to, you know, more of that. But I think just integrating a little bit on a daily basis is a fabulous way to start. Now, I do kind of uh, have a way of getting a little little focused or obsessed on certain things at some point. Is it is it just uh, wrong thinking of mine to then say, what if I really like thistle or uh, like another one of these weeds? Or I guess I could use a somewhat weedy uh, variety of plant that's sometimes harvested, uh, Jerusalem artichoke. So I planted a 12 by 12 foot uh, space of Jerusalem artichoke because I love things that grow um, very easily. And then I plan to ferment them. I'll be harvesting them soon. Can I do that with certain, can I start to plant a kind of a bed of certain kinds of things? Or is that kind of going against the whole idea of how weeds work? Yeah, you definitely can. I think that's a great idea. What I notice is that when one weed comes in, let's say lamb's quarter or amaranth, it'll often receive a whole area. And um, then all of a sudden you'll have this amazing crop that you can harvest. And, you know, it does move around, so it may not always be be there that way. But if you wanted it to be, you could easily just sprinkle some seeds in and they'll know what to do. <laughs> That's That sounds great. And I know that my, my two-year-old son, uh, before, like when he was about a year and a half, he was loving the lamb's quarter when it was coming up. He just would grab that by the leaf. We just kind of have to watch him because he, he knows he loves that. So uh, sometimes he tries to grab other kinds of things that we don't know if they're edible. But that and wild watercress, he loves both of those. Wow, that's great. <laughs> and then we can't get him to eat an, a vegetable inside at all. Like If it's, if it's right. from a garden or real, he won't touch it. It is amazing. It's like somehow by going outside and foraging, even if it's just a few weeds out in the backyard, it connects us to these instinctual, this instinctual nature that we have that's very, very old in us, the hunter-gatherer instinct. And I think it, it, not only that, but it awakens our, our um, intuitive ability to listen and tune in and really survive on planet Earth. 
well, where did this, where did this take place for you? Where did, when did your awakening happen? I mean, what inspired you to kind of be this, at least from my initial sense, the spokesperson for edible weeds? Well, my very first like big moment happened when I was 11 and I was floating on this air mattress on a mountain lake and my family, my brother and cousins all went back to have lunch. And I just kept floating on this little air mattress to the far end of the lake kind of disappeared from sight and then crawled through the muck um, to get to shore and sat down and all the plants around me. um, I just got totally euphoric, like this high, high energy and the plants communicated you're home and you're going to live your life with us. And I think from that moment on, I just wanted to learn everything I could about plants and decided like after high school to camp out for a whole summer, just to eat wild edibles and learn so much that summer and then just kept going, you know, got a biology degree. And, and then um, I have a neighbor who happens to spray for a living, the wild weeds. <laughs> and that provided a huge amount of motivation for me to not only, um, but just basically to educate how important they are so we can shift that practice. Man, has that neighbor uh, since changed careers or do you still live in that, uh, that balance between what you both are interested in? Yeah, I still live in it. Okay. <laughs> it's still there in my face, but there's been some major change because we've, I've been working with the city and we uh, passed a resolution that um, now over a third of our city parks are going to be managed organically and we help the city buy their own truck so they can make their own compost tea. And so it's shifting. It's not a radical like overnight goodbye as I would wish, but at least it's happening in the right direction. You know, it's going there. Do you find that that's unique to your area based on the kind of work that you and others have been doing in the community? Or are there other areas and examples of that throughout the United States that are starting to pop up? Yeah, there really are other examples. Um, And there's other cities that have dandelion festivals. We also have a dandelion festival. So we're promoting organic land stewardship practices. And so there's other um, places that have shifted more organic practices and there's even a B city USA, which is um, kind of a new kind of like uh, tree city USA, different cities. If they take a pledge to plant more trees and protect their trees, they get a, kind of like a little badge sign that they can put out there in their city <laughs> that they um, are doing good for the earth. And so there's now a B city. And I think a big component of that is really to minimize the herbicides and pesticides being used within the city. So yeah, there are some great other models out there. And what would you say if there's anyone else like that's, uh, that's living right next to uh, someone that is, is uh, in charge of spraying and uh, herbicides and different things like that? What do you, what do you say if there's someone else that's kind of like maybe where you were many years ago, like, uh, can they really start to make a difference? I mean, is it something that can happen quick enough or does someone really just have to be resilient and stick with it? Well, I think today it's almost like we absolutely have to jump in that direction because of everything is depending upon everything else. And the quality of our environment is so key for, for, for quality of life for humans and all beings. So it's more absolutely people can make a difference, a huge difference, even right away. I think what I learned through many years of doing this is if you can start to establish good relationships with like your city council or certain clubs and get 
get people excited about this direction and from a positive light, that's usually the better approach than to fight something. <laughs> Fighting takes more energy, and so if you can gather the support towards something positive, that tends to be a little easier path. And it seems like you are doing this in, in multiple ways, not only on the uh, the government or political side of in your community, but also you have a cafe and a CSA program for, at least it seems like a CSA program for, for weeds. Could you talk a little bit about these different things and, and how it has been received in your community? Yeah, great. Um, yeah, I find that the best way to educate people is to feed them the weeds. <laughs> because as soon as so we actually, we have a booth at the farmer's market also, in addition to our wild food cafe. And one of our hot sellers is a, is a thistle root chai tea. And so as soon as somebody drinks the root of a thistle, they're actually part thistle themselves. And so no longer can they hate the thistle plant. <laughs> and that's actually a really powerful way to educate is through um turning it into a delicious recipe and showing how easy it can be to eat them. And then rather than it being a nuisance and a problem, they become an incredible resource. So our wild food cafe, we also use all kinds of the wild weeds and everything we make. And it's a four course gourmet meal with, you know, soup, salad, main entree, dessert, plus a juice or a tea. And um, a huge part of it is educating and bringing people together that care about health and the earth and um, sustainable practices. And then another piece, which is the Wild Food CSA, um, that is another dimension where it can actually be profitable to harvest your weeds. So we um, harvest our weeds, we dry them, and then we grind them into a green powder that's actually probably, I mean, I haven't done the statistics myself, but it's as potent as any green powder out there as far as nutrient level, partly because it's so local and regional to the people who are eating it and so freshly made. Um, and these wild plants are just so packed with nutrients. So we grind these, these dried greens of all the different weeds, like all 13 weeds can work. And then that is a fabulous supplement for the winter. And we actually charge for it. So you can even um, find that not only is it a resource, these weeds, for our personal health and the earth, but actually monetary too. And same thing with the wild CSA. Um, we have, you know, a group of families that sign up for it every year, and they get a goodie bag every week. And we give them all kinds of different uh, weeds, and sometimes we'll make green chips. You know, we'll, we'll dry the greens with a marinade sauce and bag them up for people, or we'll make... Um, we actually do a kombucha, you know, we ferment our own kombuchas with some of the wild weeds and uh, flavorings and certainly kimchi and sauerkraut too, homemade toothpaste and, you know, on and on. We just have fun with it. Plus just simple greens for salad. Um, you've really piqued my interest with that, that kombucha. If it's not revealing a just secret recipe, what are you, uh, what kind of things do you add to the kombucha? So the kombucha, we, um, we play with the roots and, you know, sometimes it's like a root blend and it might also include like some ginger and some of the roots that aren't wild, but we'll integrate the wild ones in there too. And then we've also done like a green, a green kombucha where we'll take green powder and mix that in kind of like a green juice and then culture it. Sounds delicious. Yeah, and it is. It's very delicious. 
and I like when there there are people on doing these kind of unique things. I, I just like to uh, frame it as possibly there's someone listening that is, you know, interested in doing something similar to what you're doing with say your CSA program or whatnot. How uh, can you give any kind of idea? Like how realistically, if someone wanted to do this, to be able to share with their community, either for profit or just, uh, just, just a way to share what kind of time commitment does it take to, to harvest? I mean, we're talking like an entire day to be able to uh, have enough food for your cafe or um, is it, is it something that takes far less time than someone that doesn't know anything about this might assume? Yeah, well, what I found is that it's it's an exciting thing, and so it actually attracts a lot of people who might want to learn um, about the wild foods. And so a huge part of our labor, we do have core people who are paid also, but really a huge part of what we do is through volunteer. And so, like, for the wild CSA, there might be anywhere from four to six people, and we spend a half a day harvesting and get everything all prepped up and really ready to go by, you know, midday. And, and it's, there's so much learning that happens while we're doing it that it's a nice exchange. And of course then, you know, people who help out would then get a free lunch at the cafe also. So you get a whole morning of learning about the wild foods and processing processing them. And then you get to feast on a wild meal at the end. But then there's real no money exchange, which is a sweet way to, um, yeah, just work with all of our gifts and skills and share towards a bigger goal. And it just seems to strengthen everything, all the positivity, the stuff that you're doing. I mean, people are willing to volunteer to to experience the, the joy of harvesting this kind of stuff. I'm assuming that your neighbor doesn't have anyone volunteering to learn how to spray herbicides. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> so, I mean, um, where where should people go if they want to find out more about what you're doing, uh, about your work, or about your book? One of the great places that they can visit is our website, TurtleLakeRefuge.org, and um, that's certainly a good start. They can come visit Durango, Colorado, and have you know have a lunch with us or volunteer with us at the farm or in the wild. And I'm actually on tour right now, which is kind of fun. And so I also really enjoy going to where people live. And if there's interest, I'm very happy to take people out on a walk about either an afternoon or it could even be a week. You know, we can just really go into the woods and learn and enjoy these wild foods that way, too. So I'm I'm available right now for that kind of education, but then it's very much also rooted in Durango. Um, but yeah, visiting our website is a great place. And so they'd be able to get in contact with you from there if they had ideas for you. Yes. Great. I will definitely have that in the show notes as well. Do you have any closing thoughts or, or words to motivate people into action to start enjoying more weeds in their life? Yeah. I, um, I find that there's just an incredible joy that comes from eating foods directly harvested from the earth, just like this free bounty that the earth provides us. And when we start to eat them on a regular basis, there's a, it's almost like becoming a more of a wild human being. And I think the more of us that eat our weeds, we're going to start shifting into a more noble race where we need less from far away and our our basic core joys come from simple things and 
And really, it feels like it's just the path ahead of us. That's the way to go and encouraging more of it collectively and in community and making it fun. I'm just really excited to to share that path with others. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So I hope you've enjoyed this this talk and, and really people get out there, check out this book. It's very inspiring. Uh, the Wild Wisdom of Weeds by Katrina Blair. And if any of you listeners are by chance going to start incorporating weeds into your ferments, please do share because I'll make sure I share those in future episodes so you can send those to to podcast at firmup.com and maybe that will be kind of something in the in the spring as weeds start growing up again we can we can do a a weed episode like that if you have anything to share otherwise you'll find the show notes for this episode at firmup.com slash podcast slash 86 and as always you can find us on twitter at firmup facebook at firmup and anywhere else at firmup and until next time firm up <laughs>